Welcome to the podcast. I'm Carla Joy Treadway. I'm here to help you navigate nuanced conversations and explore topics that demand your attention and awareness. There is no topic off limits here. Together, we will seek to find the middle path, explore the polarities of darkness and light, left and right, grace and grit. As a writer, life coach, and seasoned yogi, I'm in the business of awareness and conscious action. I'm here to create space for the conversations that need to be had in order to create solutions that bridge the divide between humans. Sensemaking will use practical, logical, philosophical, and spiritual tools to help us gain well-rounded perspectives on issues that strike a chord. Let's get started. Hello, my friends. I can't wait to bring you today's conversation. I've been wanting to talk to Dan Evans for quite a while. Dan Evans is an Army veteran, a bilateral amputee, a yoga teacher, a wounded warrior, a keynote speaker, and many, many more things. This is an incredible story about courage integrity, resilience, agency, and gratitude. Dan is the type of human that we need to be getting in front of our children. I hope you really enjoy this story. I think it's going to bring a tear to your eye. I think it's going to create in you um, inspiration and perhaps even direction. Before we get into the show, I want to mention our sponsors here. This episode is brought to you by my membership series, The Sovereign. The Sovereign is a unique membership for a world gone wild that teaches you everything you need to be sovereign and free from the inside out. Guys, before we get into this episode, bring a tissue. I think you might need it. If you resonate with what Dan is speaking about here, reach out, learn about him more, and maybe share this episode with your friends and family. I think everyone can take something away from this incredible conversation. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm Carla Joy Treadway, and I have with me today my friend Dan Nevins. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it is so great to be here. Great to see you. I... um. First, saw, I think I know you more than you know me. The first time I was aware of who you were was at a Baron Baptiste yoga immersion in Utah. Yeah. Was it Utah? No, Colorado? sorry, Colorado. And yeah, I think. Colorado. And you came out on stage and you told your story, which is amazing. You're an army veteran, you're a yoga teacher. Um, that in itself was so inspiring and then baron came on stage too and and just grilled you and made you do a bunch of coaching work and i was like my god this man can take a lot (laughs) um i'm sure there's a lot of people in my space that uh haven't heard of dan nevins can you tell us a little bit uh more about your background and the things that you speak about yeah absolutely so I mean, so like, where to start? I was born, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I well, it is sort of relevant where I grew up. So I grew up in Baltimore, so Baltimore, Maryland, which is um, 
kind of a, like a rough, rough place to grow up. Um, there was a show um, called The Wire back in the day that talked about like the gangs in the inner city in Baltimore and you know, sort of like the the sort of relationship between the police and the gangs. And like, I grew up in all that, like that sort of situation. And um, like really poor. Uh, my mom left when I was 13 years old. Um, like I, I don't think she knew she grew up on a farm. She didn't really know how to leave my dad. So she just left the whole family. Like she just kind of took off. Um, I'm sure it was, I still have a great relationship with my mom now, but it was kind of really rough back then, especially being 13 and now you don't have a mom. And my dad was a truck driver. He was gone for weeks at a time. And so my brother and I sort of kind of basically raised ourselves. And if I didn't have a job, I probably wouldn't have eaten, you know, not because my dad didn't try because, you know, he would leave, fill the refrigerator full of like not great food, but food that you could eat, right? Lunch meat and things like that. And then, um, my brother would, he was 16 when I was 13 and invite all his friends over and they'd do a bunch of drugs and drink some booze and then eat all the food, right? Like it was sort of like one of those kind of situations. So I was, I think I was always looking for some sort of escape. Like, I'm like, I can't, I can't stay here. Like I knew in my soul that I needed to sort of get out of Maryland. So for Baltimore. And then so um, the army sort of was the way out because the, the Gulf War was just happening. So my senior year in high school was 90 to 91. And so, you know, people were bringing out their flags again. There's this renewed patriotism. And then I saw like the commercials for the army. Oh, I can go to college. I can do. So I just said, I'm going to enlist. And I did. And then the war started. And then the war in the middle of my uh, senior year of high school, the war started and then it was over before I graduated and then went off to basic training. So I spent eight years in the peacetime army, active duty, four years in Germany, which I loved because I got to be that, the poor kid from Baltimore who hasn't seen anything, you know, my like four block radius. It was like my whole universe growing up. And then I got to travel all over Europe and see art and get immersed in different culture and meet people from different countries and gain different perspectives. And it was sort of like really started waking me up in a, in a really healthy way. And then, you know, um, after eight years, so four years in Germany, then I went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which is the best place in the world to be a soldier, by the way, because you can like, you know, I got to jump out of every type of aircraft known to man and shoot every weapon system that could possibly be. And even like, uh, prototype weapons that were being tested like that they would go to Fort Bragg and like use I was at the headquarters of 18th Airborne Corps so we got to test a lot of things and and do a lot of really cool like army stuff that when you're a kid you're like whoa that's so cool and then now you're doing it um and I and I absolutely loved it oh by the way though Fort Bragg is the worst place in the world uh to be a single dude because there's like I think it's 18 men to every eligible woman like in the area so you know any single ladies that are like looking and they can't just tell them to go to Fort Bragg they can have their pick I don't know if that's smart or not but the numbers are good right the numbers are good and I but and I and I loved it like I love putting on my uniform every day I love going to work I love what it meant I love how I felt um I love that physical fitness was a part of my job you know like those sort of aspects. I was like, it's the best job in the world, except 
um, no one joins the army to get rich. And I had like growing up really poor, I knew that I wanted um, to have more money, more, more whatever. So I left and um, went back to school, but stayed in the National Guard. You know, the one weekend a month, two weeks a year that they have here in the States. And it's run by like each individual state. And I had moved from Maryland, like when I re retired or, or when I got out of active duty, I went back to Maryland and I was going to go to the University of Maryland. But then I kind of looked around and all my friends were living in their parents' basements. And it was sort of like the same thing, like they were into drugs and dealing drugs and sort of like all the things I wanted to get away from. So I packed up and said, how far away can I get from here? And I just drove to California. So I was living in Northern California, went to school at Sonoma State University, which is um, very, very, very liberal school. And I, at that point in my life, though, I was so military and so nonpartisan just completely that I didn't even understand a liberal school and concern. I didn't even understand the concept of like liberal conservative and the dichotomy there and, and everything else. But um, the point is, yeah, I stayed in the army just one week in a month and then ultimately got deployed once right after 9-11 um, to the border of California and Mexico where we just kind of stood there without weapons because it was against the Posse Comitatus Act and just like had a show of force on the border because they were Arab nationals were coming in through Mexico and then coming up through the border. And most of them, I'm sure, just trying to like come have a better life, but then you never know who's coming in, right? So that was a show of force. And then ultimately got deployed uh, to Iraq in the very beginning of 2004 for Operation Iraqi Freedom II. And so like I, I joined the army initially because I wanted to like fight in the war, like, oh, like the renewed sense of patriotism now, like I was getting my chance. But we were not like the California Army National Guard had no money, like in the training budget, like there wasn't enough money in the training budget to buy bullets to qualify a platoon, like about 40 people, there wasn't enough money, money to buy enough bullets to, to train them on their primary weapon system in the whole battalion. So uh, the budget for 700 people didn't have enough money to buy bullets to train 40. So, wow, um, and that's just, uh, it's, it's a sort of historical, like all we can take from this because nothing's happening with the California National Guard if you're the governor of California. So we don't, they don't need all this money because there's nothing happening. There's no wars happening. So it's, it's normal. I think, but the result was we were unprepared and untrained and here we were getting deployed. And so it took like, um, out of our whole battalion of around 700 people, uh, it took all of that big pool to make one deployable company of just over a hundred people to go to Iraq because most people just weren't trained. Maybe they were overweight, you know, all the different things that'll keep you from going on a deployment. And so we wound up a team of people who didn't even really know each other you know, being deployed. And then there was a big question mark, like what would we even be doing over there? Because we had no, we were a combat engineer unit and there was no combat engineer mission over there. So we were just kind of going over there curious, like, oh, but look at us. We look like the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Our uniforms didn't match because they didn't, like we had woodland camouflage uh, protective gear, like helmet and, and, and vest. But then like, Desert camouflage uniform. Just it just looked not like the most professional army in the world. 
And our weapons were literally from the Vietnam era. They were the weapons that like we had in our armory for forever and ever. And so when we're, we're there and we're like prepping to go, there's like, there's no way we're going to do anything important. Like we're going to be behind the people that are behind the people who are behind the people doing something like taking action. Like that's what I think we all thought. But then we got into theater and that was not what happened. We got assigned to a brand new task force called Task Force Tacoma, which was attached to First Infantry Division and our company was basically a little bit more than half of that task force. And we were the ones kicking in doors and chasing down bad guys. Like I was like, how, like, how did that happen? And fortunately, uh, you know, I, I think this is really true with the human spirit is that you don't know what you're capable of until you put yourself to the test. And so we all had no choice. It's sort of like, we have to go do this. So it sort of woke up that sort of feeling in people who were untrained to say like, we have to get better because we were losing people. And we, you know, when you, there's great teachers, when you watch your friends die, um, the sort of gravity of that situation inspires you to be the best person you can be. And our whole yeah. team of like Beverly Hillbillies transformed into an amazing unit of cohesive warfighters. I mean, it wasn't overnight, but it, we exercised the discipline it took to get there. Um, and then as we got better, like the sophistication and level of the missions we were getting assigned were kind of like going up and up. And then uh, I'll never forget the Battle of Fallujah started on November 7th of 2004. And I was not in Fallujah. Um, but the reason I remember is I had a, a medic, this guy named Sergeant Goutreau, and he was like literally the best medic on the planet. Uh, worst, not, not the worst. I don't know if he's ever heard me talk about him this way, but like he's the kind of guy that was like, when things didn't really matter, like, sort of like a personal opinion everything matters in the military and mission first and there's all these sort of uh kind of left and right guideposts of like how you're supposed to behave even if a mission isn't necessarily so scary or so like you don't expect anything bad to happen you're still supposed to have this discipline like like light discipline like i don't know if you've heard of that like you know if you're in a combat situation and it's dark outside and, you know, you don't know where the enemy might be. You don't want to shine any lights around because then they know where to put the bullets. And the same thing with noise discipline. You don't want to be, that's why you have hand signals because you don't want to be overheard saying anything out loud, right? And Cern Goutreau is the type of guy that if he deemed it, and while in, in, in usually 100% correctly, that what we're doing isn't that big of a deal actually because it's like not like every moment of combat is like oh you're gritting your teeth and you're in a firefight it's, there's a lot of downtime and like time that you're just present being aware of what's happening and you're out in the local populace doing whatever so it'd be a two o'clock in the morning patrol that we're doing and sergeant g like we'd park somewhere to do overwatch and Sergeant G would be the guy who would just light up a cigarette with this big old cherry and flame, like broadcasting where he's at to the world and screaming out loud, man, I hate to hear this is bullshit. Like, the, you know, and I'm like, you know, Sergeant G, calm down. He's like, man, ain't nothing going to happen over here. Like, he was just that guy. <laughs> but when it got real, Sergeant G could shoot, move, communicate, keep us patched up and in the fight. Like, nobody was better. 
So when, when the Battle of Fallujah was sort of like being prepared for the Marines, it was a Marine effort. The Battle of Fallujah was like mostly Marines and I was in the army. So soldier versus Marine. And they, the Marines don't have medics. They have Navy corpsmen that serve as medics and there's not a lot of Navy corpsmen. So they needed more medics on the ground in Fallujah and they took Sergeant G um, because he was, because he was amazing. And then I wound up with a new medic named Dan, Dan Smee, who's oddly enough from California, but from Southern California. I had never met him before either. And this guy was like, I remember the first time I met him, he had his helmet cocked back on his head. And he had this blonde, like surfer hair kind of hanging down, like, you know, like in his face. And then he was like, oh my God, Sergeant Nevins is so good to meet you, bro. And I'm like, this guy's high. I think I know it. Like, whatever. Like, we're not supposed to be able to do that. Um, and he wasn't. It's just the way he talked, like his culture from being from Southern California. And then, um, you know, so we got to kind of get to know each other a little bit. But then a couple of days later, on November 9th, we got intelligence that the insurgency was leaving Fallujah, like a part of it, to attack our area of operations, this place called LSA Anaconda, which was uh, Air Force, it was like a Air Force Army multinational sort of allied base had like over 20,000 people included um, Balad Air Base. So a lot of things would get shipped into Balad and, you know, big cargo planes and then broken down into smaller things to get loaded on trucks to be shipped out to the forward operating bases around the theater. So it's like a pretty significant place that we were in charge of the external security for. So we got that intelligence that, that was going to happen so we like the most professional army in the world drew up a battle plan and said we're going to meet the enemy where they are and that's what we did and then we'll be prepared for it so we had like when this had a lot of gravity for me too because you know one of my heroes was my platoon sergeant a guy named sergeant first class mike adelini and sergeant adelini was just a few weeks before we saw him wince like one time and we said, what's wrong? He lifted up his shirt and he showed us this like protruding abdominal hernia that was like really gnarly and said, you got to go get that fixed. And so he had a surgery date to go get it fixed. And it happened to be November 10th, which was the day of this mission. And I was the first squad leader. So because he was gone, now I was in charge of this mission. So a lot of gravity. You know, we expected there to be a firefight. We expected something to happen and our sort of premise behind the mission was like 72 hours we're going to go looking for these people not come we're not going to come back we're going to stay gone for 72 hours in a concealed position and like wait for this thing that's supposed to happen to happen and then so i just remember the next morning getting up for this mission like super early we had a 4 a.m start time so i'm at like 2 30 making sure everybody has everything that they need doing pre-combat checks and I go to my vehicle, like the vehicle I'm going to be in, the lead vehicle, this convoy of six six vehicles. And yeah, I go to tap my driver to see if he's good to go. And it's Mike, my boss, my platoon sergeant. And I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, he's the guy who couldn't put his men in harm's way without at least being part of it somehow. And so he was like all in and said like, okay, I'm going to at least take you there and, and be as much a part of this mission as I can. And then I remember just getting in the truck. This is my boss. What am I going to tell him? No. <laughs> so we left the main gates of LSA and Nakanda at exactly zero, 400 hours, like right on time, like military precision. 
And I remember we got to the end of our sort of gate row once we left the gate and you hit a T intersection that we called Route Dover and we took an immediate right. And then an almost immediate left on this really terrible excuse for a road that was next to a canal that we had to drive out about seven kilometers to where we were supposed to dismount and then, you know, kind of do our sneaky snoop and poop mission to go find the guys. And then the trucks were just going to come back and, and turn themselves in. So like it's supposed to look like nobody, cause they didn't, the idea was they weren't even going to stop. They're just going to slow down a little bit. We're going to get out. Nobody's going to know that the, the team of soldiers got out uh, at least conceptually. But I remember once we turned on that dirt road and my head was bowed in prayer, like it was before every mission, it was completely black outside. There was low hanging cloud coverage. So you couldn't see the moon or stars. It was eerily quiet. And I remember being in that prayer. The only thing I could hear really was my own breath. And then the familiar sound of the 6.2 liter Cummings diesel engine in that Humvee. And then as I'm in that prayer and we're sort of moving carefully down this pitiful excuse for a road, boom, the silence was destroyed by the deafening blast that sent my vehicle in the air in a ball of fire. And I don't really remember exactly um, like every moment, but I remember I could feel and hear the truck basically disintegrate around my body. Like this sound, like, like being inside of a, a metal can full of screws and bolts and it being shaken, shaken up. And the truck basically disintegrated around my body. And when I opened my eyes, I realized that I was ejected from the vehicle, but my legs were still caught in the twisted and burning metal that used to be the floorboard and undercarriage of the truck. And I'm sort of like um, laying in the dirt. My legs are pinned in the truck. I can't get them out. And I just remember saying to myself like, Dan, get up, put your weapon into operation. Dan, get up. And I just couldn't, I couldn't move. And I'm supposed to be leading this, this effort here. And I'm, I'm not saying anything, and, but I hear, I listen. And my team is doing everything they're supposed to do. They're dismounting, they're securing the perimeter. And I'm supposed to be the guy yelling out all these commands and doing all this stuff. And I'm saying nothing, but they're doing everything right. And I just realized, I'm like, I, I think I'm hurt pretty bad here, but I really don't get it. And you have to imagine after this explosion, there's so much dust in the air. Like I really couldn't see maybe a foot in front of my face. And as the dust comes down and I could start to see a little more and then it was pitch black outside, but my truck had um, started to catch fire from the, as a result of the blast, it blew off the, the oil cooler and you know, all that stuff was starting to catch on fire. Um, not like a massive out of control fire, but enough to bring light. And so in that process, I'm, I'm sort of watching this dust descend and I look at the driver's compartment of the vehicle and it was completely obvious that Mike had made the ultimate sacrifice. And um, I saw how bad, what kind of shape that he was in. And I knew that I was hurt at that point pretty bad. And then I sort of started checking myself, like my head first, like as you're trained and my helmet came apart in two pieces in my hand. And I was like, well, that's not a great start, but um, I'm still conscious and that's a good thing. And I checked myself, my arms, my torso, and I could feel like pins and needles, like my feeling was coming back to my hands and started reaching up and checking myself out. And when I reached up for my legs that were still up and in the vehicle, that's when I felt it. 
the unmistakable arterial blood spurt with every beat of my heart. And at that point, I mean, it was a lot of blood and I, I knew I was going to die. I was making my peace with God. I was saying, saying goodbye to my wife and my 10 year old daughter. I was literally giving up and losing what seemed like all of my blood in this miserable place on the planet. And uh, I just, you know, when they say, I'm sure you've heard this before, like you're, when you're about to die, your life flashes before your eyes. Um, well, that wasn't my experience. For me, it was more like watching a slideshow of like unfulfilled goals or sort of like who I thought I was going to get to be one day. And like all these sort of like life goals were like, it's like one by one they were, and I can't really remember exactly what they were, but like I'm left with like, that was the quality of that experience. But I remember the last sort of image that I had and it was my 10 year old daughter and she was all grown up and uh, dressed in white, head to toe, full bride, you know, and she was walking down the aisle with that, without her dad. And uh, I just remember saying, Dan, I'm alive. I'm alive. I better do something to keep it that way. So I knew that I was bleeding from, from, from like my inside of my leg and knew my femoral artery was probably cut in half. And I just reached in and I pressed against the, the, the wound and just prayed, like I was just praying that it would just give enough time for the medic to arrive, for, for Sergeant G, because Sergeant G could fix anything, you know? And it's like, as I'm like sitting there, I blink my eyes and there's fucking Dan Smee with his hair hanging in my face and totally lying to me saying, Sergeant Evans, you're going to be all right. And then I, like, I blinked again. I had a tourniquet on my leg. I blinked again. One of my team leaders was putting an IV in my arm. And then I blinked again to my whole team, like my family was uh, putting themselves in harm's way to remove my legs from that truck that was still on fire. And then I just got stretcher to the hospital and went in for surgery right there in a tent, uh, right on, right next to the main gates of LSA and the con that I had just left maybe 10 minutes before. And I remember waking up from that surgery um, and there was a combat nurse's face right in mine. And I'll never know her name, but I'll never forget her face and, or what she said. She said, Sergeant Evans, you're a very lucky man. We managed to repair your femoral artery. Um, she's like, you know, there was a, it was a lot of work. We had to take your left leg below the knee. We managed to save your right one for now, but you'll probably lose that one too. And she was right. And uh, so, so like this massive wave of pity for myself just like slammed into me. And I was just like, what can, what can a guy with no legs do? And I was just thinking about how's my wife going to love me anymore? How's my daughter going to react to a dad that doesn't have legs? Like, what am I going to be in a wheelchair forever? Like, I didn't know, like all these sort of doubts and questions and things were like, just, I was just confronted with it all at once. And it was, it was terrifying. And, uh, and as that was happening, I just looked against the wall of the tent and there was just my, my whole team waiting for me to wake up. 
And uh, there's nothing like that sort of love that you have for people that sort of shakes away all the doubt and fear and certainty. And, and it's sort of like all that just went away. And they surrounded my bed and uh, we told horrible, horrible jokes. We told so many inappropriate jokes. That <laughs> was, it was hilarious, but also like, that was just what's what we do, you know, to cope. And then we, well, what's that? Oh, and, they knew you were going to be okay, even though you didn't feel that in that oh, moment. Yeah. yeah. And I think the way I started joking right along with them, they're like, oh, this, he's fine, you know? And uh, that that moment, that's sort of like, I felt like maybe I was going to be okay. Um, and, and like sort of just prepared myself for what that ride was going to be like. In two years at Walter Reed Army Medical Center and 30 something surgeries while I was in there, mostly trying to save my right leg, which ultimately didn't work. Well, it worked. So I wound up retiring from the army. I still had a leg on my right side, but it was terribly painful. I was on enough fentanyl of all things in the world, right? I was on enough fentanyl to kill an elephant just to manage my pain. Um, that, and it was like, it was the stupidest thing in the world to keep my leg. And it, it wound up being three years later, like three years after my injury that I got another bone infection in my right ankle. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Cause I was always like, should I, should I take it? But that's just another surgery It's something else. And so I, like, I needed a reason and then God answered with this infection. And then, so sorry, the hiccups. And then, so the infection happened and I was like, I got to take it. It was the right thing to do. And then eight weeks after I took my right leg off, I was running. What? And uh, sorry, I'm getting so emotional. I kind of forget how impactful this stuff was. Is You know, like I was a competitive runner before, like the running was like my thing. Um, yeah. And I hadn't been able to do it in years. And then so I was generating wind on my face with my own body. And I was like, oh, so good. And I wound up running too much and I screwed my leg all up and I had to take it, take it. Like I couldn't wear my leg for like three months after that. So like, I wasn't really smart about it, but it did, yeah. um, it was the best decision in the world to take my other leg off. And I'm so grateful for those experiences, which is so weird to say that, oh, I'm so grateful I got my legs blown off. And I lost my mentor in this process. And, you know, these, um, it's just funny how life prepares you for who you're supposed to be. Um, mm -hmm. And it takes suffering. It takes hardships to sort of realize what's actually important and to realize like what's worth my time and then what's not. And so, you know, every year I just get more and more grateful. Like the, the term that, that uh, most people use for that type of situation is like they, that you're alive day. So November 10th, 2004, like I almost died. Um, so then the next year is my first alive day on November 10th. And uh, every year on November 10th, I like, 
I take time to say like, this is, these are all the things that I'm grateful for. These are, this is who I want to be as a man, as a leader, as a, as a peer, as a dad, as a, now a husband again. Um, these, this is who I want to be. And like, are the choices I'm making in my life pointing in that direction? And uh, without the suffering and without that sort of perspective, I think that exercise probably would probably wouldn't happen. Um, one, but if it did, it wouldn't have the same sort of gravitas and the same sort of like, like these are the things that matter. What can I do to fix myself? Um, when it looks like the world is what needs fixing, well, you gotta, you gotta start here. And if, and if I do that well, then I think maybe other people will do the same and then the world actually heals. You get a lot of tough love too. I remember you telling the story about when you were in the hospital and the wounded warrior project came in. Right. And they said, all right, Dan, pick your date. We're going skiing. And you're like, how dare you? (laughs) I was so mad, dude. Cause like one, so I had all these infections. So sort of like um, Acinetobacter pseudomonas and MRSA, like three of those most deadly bacteria in the world that were in my blood, my tissue, and my bones at the same time due to like where I was blown up. And so I had contact precautions in my room. So I had a room by myself. And if the nurses or whatever came in, they had to wear these yellow suits and like face masks and stuff. I thought it was a little overkill, but that's like, you know, it's their protocol. And I remember this guy, John Melia and and RJ Mead, two of the founders of the Warrior Project, they came in and they did, they were like, hey, uh, we're going to take a bunch of uh, warriors skiing next month. And we want you to go. And I was so mad. I was like, what the fuck do you mean skiing? Like, do you not have eyes, bro? Like, do you not see what's going on? And then they got, they sort of got it. And they've had the benefit of being in the hospital for a while and seeing people get better. Right. And now here I am, I'm at the bottom of the barrel, like feeling terrible. And they're like, they're like, no, you don't get it, man. They're like, if the hospital clears you to go, like we have the best adaptive equipment in the world. We have the best adaptive instructors in the world who are going to make sure that we get you to the bottom of the mountain. And then I was like, damn it. Why do you have to be so right? You know, like that whole, like, uh, like it helped me see that I wasn't going to be stuck in that position forever because that, at that moment, that's what it felt like. Like, I'm just going to be in this much pain forever. I'm going to be laying in this hospital bed forever. I'm going to be stuck to all these tubes and hoses and external fixators and traction and all this stuff forever. And then they just reminded me that um, that wasn't going to be the case. And then they brought in warriors to visit that were like further along in their recovery than me because they had got injured before. And they're like, you know, a guy walked in with two prosthetic legs with like no hitch in his gate. Like he just walked in like anybody and has two prosthetic legs. He's like, man, it's going to get better. I was like, if he can do it, I can do it. And so like those moments that they, that Wounded Warrior Project created for me in the, in the hospital. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm beyond grateful. Like, I don't even, I don't know what my recovery would have been like had I not had them. I'm learning a lot about 
agency lately yeah. there there's we we hear two different stories right there's some people think that we just really need to take care of all of people's problems but then we have this other mentality that's just like pull up your bootstraps figure it out no matter how hard you can do it and what i'm learning is it's it's both there's obviously something tremendously powerful about you as a human being but it's because of these support networks around you Mm -hmm. that the support needs to then tell you you can do it you can pull yourself up but it's it's both like do you think you could have turned this around if it was just you it's really it's a really great question because i would like to say like yeah i would eventually have that aha moment where i knew that um i knew that i'd be faced with some sort of choice like i can't live like this like i'd be so defeated feeling and like well one i don't like that feeling i don't think anybody does really and then hopefully i'd have the awareness and the wherewithal to recognize that i could do something about it and then change but i can tell you this for certain about that sort of that sort of question is that it definitely wouldn't have happened in the same timeline it would have taken much longer and then so when you have a network of people around you that just, and it's a skill, it's a skill that I'm still developing because I know how powerful it is, is sort of just to suggest something, right? To just suggest that like you do have the ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and actually get this handled um, to actually sort of get you there faster. And so that's why I'm grateful. Like I hope, and, and I, I feel like I believe I would have got there eventually, um, hopefully, but that's a big question mark that I'm so glad I never had to resolve because you have these people that, you know, kind of knew better and wanted to be of service. They didn't want to help you. Like that's the problem with helping like people who just want to help. It's disempowering to to the person that that's actually struggling it's like no i went they were being of service they put themselves there and created an atmosphere and created an environment where i could kind of wake up to that myself and then see it a lot more clearly and it's brilliant and i that's that's who i want to be in the world for veterans um sorry i kicked my little tripod here and we went ahead a little earthquake uh who I want to be is I realize that, you know, veterans are all people, all people are struggling, right? So like, there's a, there's a lot of things happening in the world. And there's a lot of energies at play that like, we're all struggling right now. But the group of like, so like my family are the veterans community. And so I work to sort of be that person that can actually suggest that there's something about taking care of yourself, that there's something about this ancient form of uh, practice called yoga that actually might be beneficial for you. There's a, you know, like, wow, the things I've learned in stillness uh, from meditation have greatly impacted my life. And then hopefully, you know, there's something about, and even in a regular yoga class, there's something about 
um, you watch, you know, a guy walk in who's going to teach the class who doesn't have legs. And it sort of like amplifies the listening. They're like, oh, shit, what does this guy have to say? And never in a trillion years would I ever consider that I was going to ever one day be a yoga teacher. Like I was against yoga, period. Like I'm like, whoa, no, well, one. And I don't mean this to be any sort of, um, any, I don't have anything around this at all, but this is just being realistic about who I was at the time back when I got hurt is I'm like, no, 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 I'm straight. So I can't do yoga. That's <laughs> not for straight men to do. Like I don't own spandex because I had, I had a vision of what yoga was and it had no men in it. Like it was just like a, it was like a very feminine thing to do. Um, and I'm like, that's not, obviously it's not for me. You know, I don't have flowing robes. I don't have any of those in my wardrobe. I don't think I want any, you know, I had this sort of notion. So when I was at Walter Reed, there were people, um, and I believe one of them was there was Annie Okerlund, who's just a really great yoga teacher, lives in uh, South Florida. And she's always been working with vets since the early days of these, the conflicts and uh, the war on terror. And the like staff would come by and be like, hey, they have a yoga class and meditation. I'm like, yeah, no, like, and they meant it, right? And it took years later for me to like realize that yoga was um, absolutely what I needed in my life. And then for the people that aren't in the yoga community who haven't done yoga, um, Dan does the hardest kind of yoga yeah. in the world. And I don't just mean physically, it, it is a physically grueling practice, um, Baptiste yoga, but Baptiste yoga is, there's so much intense personal development woven into it. Baron Baptiste yoga is like the wounded warriors coming into your room saying, get up, we're going skiing. Right. Even with you being this sick and this tired and this wounded, you are not allowed to, you're not allowed to stay here no matter what. It, it is intense. Yeah. And there is, and this is what's crazy to me because in the yoga world, there's so many different, so hundreds of styles of yoga. And some of them are the ones that I had pictured in my head, you know, like where it's, very flowery language and very, you know, um, honor your body, do what you feel like. Body, and, and like bow to the moon goddess of love. And like these sort of like filler words that are just rolling out of this teacher's mouth that have no substance or, or gravity or reality to them, you know, um, at least in the concept of modern language. And so, yeah. Baptiste yoga is like, pull your shoulders back, lift your chest up, pull yeah. everything into center line and core, right? Like, you know, and then, so it's a lot of just very practical body alignment, posturing. And then, so what's, I think what's great about Baptiste yoga and the way that Baron leads his programs is that there is a lot of like self-work involved. It's like, who are you? Like when I went to my level one yoga teacher training, um, I, at that point I was working with Wounded Warrior Project and I sort of sold it to Wounded Warrior Project for like free time off. 
to go to this training because it was like leadership development. And so, and I was sort of lying about it. I was just like, I want to go and learn more about yoga. So it's going to help me learn more about this practice that is really making me realize that I can do these things. And so I sort of like fudged the paperwork a little bit saying like, oh, it's, it's like leadership school, but it just happens to just be geared around yoga. And they were like, okay, right. They just kind of let me go. And then when I got there, well, the first practice was four hours long. I was in Hawaii in this tent that had a bubble inside of it. So it was like, there was a big building, there was a tent, and the inside of it was another bubble of like plastic wrap. And it's a trillion degrees in there. And you, as soon as you walk in, you start getting condensation and perspiration all over your body. And we practiced a hard Baptist yoga practice for four hours. And, and when, you know, people were like dying and struggling and taking breaks, that's when Baron would come and say something about, about your commitment or say something about um, giving up. And it's sort of like, you're so mushy from all this physical work that those premises just started to land. Like you weren't like, there was no, there was no way to resist because you were so tired. Like, are you stopping to take are you drinking water right now? You're not <laughs> thirsty. He'd say like, you're not actually thirsty. You're just avoiding pain because you're afraid of the liberation that's on the other side of the pain. You know, like and he's not wrong. Yeah. And then you're like, fuck, what if he's right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, what if he's right? Okay, I better, I better just keep going. Okay, maybe I'm not thirsty. You know, like those ty- types of things. And- I mean, it was like, it was torturous, but it's also brilliant because once then we started getting into normal practices, you know, twice a day, three times a day, um, normal being still very hard and 90 minutes, you know, long. Uh, and then we would, you know, have inquiry questions to work on. And so we really started diving into yourself. And for my level one, it, while I sort of lied about it being leadership sort of training, I actually, how can you be a good leader if you don't know who you are? And so I really got grounded in my level one of like who I am. Like, what do I like to do? What do I not like to do? How do I resist? What does it look like when I resist? Or when I'm, what does it look like when I'm like being a different person to different people? Like one of the, one of the things, the best things I learned from level one uh, and that I hope everybody could learn this, however they need to learn it, is how we show up differently for different people. Like, oh, if I'm talking to my kids, I talk to them this way. And if I'm talking to my parent, I talk to them this way. And I talk to like a teacher or someone I just met. And there's all of these different ways of being. So the, the term is a mask, you put on a mask, right? To like be a different person for different people. And it's exhausting. It's completely exhausting. And so I learned the importance of being myself and being the exact same way with my kids that I am with my parents, being the exact same way with someone I just met versus one of my best friends, like actually showing up as me um, without any fear around not being accepted or being judged about 
how I'm being because it's liberating to actually just be who I am uh, and then not have to like use all my energy to like summon the like, well, who am I supposed to be in this situation? And that's completely exhausting. So it's one of the things I'm most grateful for. You did the work first to get to this place to be stable and unshakable and it was deeply uncomfortable like what I notice about people now and when people really suffer who avoid discomfort if you're not willing to like all of those things the the physical practice is extremely uncomfortable (laughs) the work that inner work that Baron makes you do even more uncomfortable Mm -hmm. there are very few people willing to put themselves in that position because it's uncomfortable but I think they're really missing the point that life is uncomfortable there's no such thing as avoiding it and it's actually way more uncomfortable if you don't do this kind of work because the world is hard and I like listening to your story like even you as a child from Mm -hmm. from 13 years old you knew that it's on you that prepared you for the accident the accident mm-hmm. prepared you for baron baron prepared you for this next leg of your life and mm-hmm. we can't see that that discomfort was a good thing until you get to the other side amen I, i'll never forget that first time i saw you with baron because you you went to tell the same story we, we heard today mm-hmm. and I would have thought, okay, great. Now give Dan a hug and let him go off the stage. <laughs> right. No, you ha- you told your story. And then in front of 400 people, Baron then grilled you about where there might be familial issues or where do you need to do your work? And he was just like at you and grilling you. And I remember being in the audience thinking, leave Dan alone. <laughs> He's <laughs> right. bad enough. And, especially, and I was saying like, leave Dan alone too, because... He didn't tell me that was going to happen. Like I had no idea, right? And I think he, I think sneakily he was like, wait for this, you know? But there's a lesson there. Can I actually share a story from my level one too that I think is, is, I I forgot about it until like just now. Please. I, um, I've, I've told this story before, but it's been a long time. And I'm sort of bummed at myself for forgetting to tell it more often because I think it's really powerful, Um, especially in like today's climate where everyone feels so different from each other that they're not being heard, seen, all these things. So I remember on our first night after that four hour long practice, and it's like 1 a.m. at this point where we're getting out and we have like a 6 a.m. start time the next morning. We had homework and our homework was to journal on what happened that should not have happened? Like that was the inquiry question. What happened that shouldn't have happened? And so that can go anywhere, right? And then, so the next morning uh, after practice, and then we're doing like, so Baron said, oh, you had homework last night. Who wants to share about, you know, what they came up with? And I swear to you, Carla, like all the eyes turned and looked at me. At least it felt that way. And I'm like sitting on my hands. I am like, I am not saying a motherfucking thing. Like I am not contributing. I'm not going to be part of this. Like I was completely resistant. But then there were a lot of hands that were up. 
And then so Baron, Baron called on this, this one young woman. And I remember she sort of popped up from the, from the uh, floor, just like sprung to her feet and her hair was done just right. And her makeup was on and she comes like, and she had all Lululemon on, like, you know, like total looks like the fitness influencer. And she gets up to the mic and I remember saying to myself, oh, great. Like what's ever happened to this woman? You know, mm -hmm. like, what did she spill her latte in her Range Rover on the way to yoga practice is verbatim mm -hmm. what I thought to myself. Like, did she mm -hmm. spill her latte in her Range Rover on her way to yoga? Like that's obviously the worst thing that's ever happened this morning, but the way she's sprung up and is so put together. And I'm just judging her so hard. And uh, just based on what she looked like and how her like way of being was. And then she got up to the microphone and told a story that was so horrific about her childhood and what she had endured and terrible, horrible things I don't even want to talk about. Like, it was that bad. And she was able to like share about it and like be generous with her emotions and be generous with what she was feeling and then, you know, what it had the impact that it had on her and, you know, what should happen since. And I just remember sitting there, I'm like, I am such a dick. Like I'm just such an asshole, you know, because of what I was thinking about her and just sort of projecting onto her perfect life, that was nowhere near perfect. And uh, that made me learn to not judge people because it was such a powerful uh, difference from like what I thought and then what was what actually happened in her life. And uh, man, if we could all have that perspective, I think the world would be a lot different. Oh man, what yeah. a powerful lesson. Just not, you have no idea what people are going through. I mean, even like you said, when, when that man walked into your hospital room with his two prosthetic legs walking just perfectly, like you would never know. Yeah, hundred percent. And then because, and I remember my physical therapy too, uh, my therapist pointed at him uh, I'm trying to remember his name right now. I hate that I forget names, um, but pointed at him and then pointed at another guy who was also a double amputee. And the one was walking with a perfect gait. And then the other one was walking where he's kind of swinging his hips around. And like, it, it had a very obviously disrupted gait. And she said, who do you want to walk like? And I was like, you know, the good one like I'm gonna walk like I'm gonna walk well she's like then just do everything I say I was like sold to like physical my physical terrorist you know built up muscles in my body that I didn't know and like helped me learn how to engage different muscles in different ways to have a smooth gait and now I walk when I have pants on no one knows no one knows that I have prosthetics I have two you know artificial legs below the knee uh, and that's a huge huge blessing I don't know why I brought that story up, but <laughs> no, no, it, it it all fits. It all fits. Mm -hmm. So some people who have had a horrific accident like this, mm -hmm. they they don't end up in this good place like you. Um, 
another man that I knew, Ty Turner, he had lost one leg and then two legs from a skydiving accident. I think I mm -hmm. sent him over to you on Instagram and Ty immediately was like, what can I do? And he started figuring out how he could uh, surf and snowboard and skateboard. And what's, what do you think is the thing that makes you decide to give up or okay what now what do you think that factor is i think i think a lot of it has to do with um life experience and i don't mean that in like because we all have different life experiences right so so ty for instance it got to some point somewhere in his life where he decided to skydive where a lot of people would never try skydiving so it's like he's already has a thirst for life that came about from choices that he made. Like, do I want to go skydiving or do I want to be afraid of skydiving? He chose go attack the fear and go do it anyway. Um, and so I imagine in people like that, and I don't know if it's nature or nurture, like that's the sort of curiosity I have. I have a feeling it's a lot of um, nurture involved, like where you grow up cultural things like you know i grew up and you were you know for my skin tone i was uh, sort of a minority you know so i'm very aware of a lot of things in black culture that like like we don't do that or like we don't do that at least it's the way it was in my neighborhood and so when you grow up with like well we don't do that or not in this family or we don't and so there's like well then we don't and that limits people and so their choice has already been made from some sort of legacy uh, cultural sort of aspect. But so, but if that's not present or, or if you can overcome that, then you start to get to make choices of like, and you develop a thirst for life and then something catastrophic happens, that thirst for life is still there. So you're like, I'm gonna figure out a way. Whereas if you don't have that and you're, whether, you've been oppressed or whether you haven't been able to make those choices or haven't wanted to make those choices for whatever reason, then you don't, you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing out on. So you're like, well, I guess, you know, I'm supposed to just lay here like my great grandma uh, and be like on life support, watching soap operas all day and eating stuff that's not good for my body, you know? Yeah. So I think it's ultimately comes down to the choices you've been able to make and hopefully people get inspired to make the right choices because I know it's the same for me is like I want to live my life and I want to live my life in a way that's good for everybody um yeah. but I don't I don't necessarily want the government to tell me what that's supposed to be though you yeah. know I think I think I want like what makes sense to me is that people arrive at their con own conclusion of, hey, we should just be good to each other because it's the right thing to do versus having compelled speech around something or having the government regulate something in a way that you get in trouble if you feel differently or you get in, you know, incarcerated if you, you know, say the wrong thing or something like that's absolutely absurd to me. Um, but what's not absurd to me is loving each other. Uh, just period. And hopefully you know, inspiring, like, I hope, like, I hope the fact that I practice yoga and the fact that I, you know, I've climbed Kilimanjaro with, with no legs. And I hope that the fact that I don't let losing both of my legs 
keep me from life. Um, I hope that inspires somebody else to be like, well, shit, if he can do it, I can do it. And the same thing now, I don't think we've talked about this, but I am hopefully near the very end of a cancer journey. You know, I got diagnosed, mm -hmm. well, I had a November 1st last year, um, had a, like a gut issue that sent me to the hospital. And then they started, well, this is a normal, started doing scans, et cetera, MRIs, colonoscopy, found out I had colon cancer. Um, and, you know, had their resection surgery where they took out, you know, a good portion of my colon. And so the cancer was removed, but there was in my lymph nodes. So I wound up with stage three colon cancer. So I had to eventually do chemo. And then after I got released from the hospital, it's like four hours at home from that first surgery, I was starting at pain and the fever and had to go back in. What had happened was my anastomosis where they hooked the, the bowels back together started leaking into my gut, but it was such a small leak that they couldn't really catch it on a scan. And so that mm -hmm. for two days, they were like thinking of like, what could this be? Like what's, what's happening? And meanwhile, I'm leaking stuff that's supposed to be coming on the outside, like into my body, you know, and I had Tactic. to have emergency surgery. It was completely like swollen and bloated. They couldn't even close me up. And, you know, I had a full month in the hospital and then months at home recovery from the surgery with drains, sucking all sorts of infection out of my body and a giant open wound in my, in my abdomen with literal intestines hanging out that I had to like bandage and keep wet. So they didn't dry out. And I had a, you know, a bag to, you know, use the bathroom in the, you know, I didn't even know when that was coming. It was so, so completely not what I expected. Um, especially leave, leaving the surgery, like, after two days in the hospital, not even taking any pain medicine to have this happen. I wound up in the ICU and then again, a month in the hospital and then months to heal from that. And then finally did chemo. So six rounds of chemo finally had to heal from that um, to finally have the surgery, which I had last month of um, opening everything back up and putting it all back together. So finally, I'm like, Humpty Dumpty is put back together. I have a massive new scar for the collection that basically goes from my pubis to my sternum. Uh, and it's not been a perfect road. Like there's been some hiccups along the way, um, including actual hiccups that I had for nine days straight and didn't sleep, which was absolutely insane. Uh, but some bumps in the road and healing. And um, and here I am, I'm still healing. I have an abdominal binder on now, like holding everything together. I just got my staples out a couple days ago um, and I'm healing up. And I'm so grateful for the lessons that I've learned from yoga and life about staying present because I could have anxiety. I could start thinking into the future, like, well, what if the cancer comes back? Or what if something goes wrong with the surgery again? And what if, what if, what if? And I just riddle myself with anxiety or start looking back at like, oh, what a man, why does this always happen to me? Why do like, can I get a break? You know, which comes up, mm -hmm. you know, like, come on, God, can I Got get it. a break? Um, yeah, fair. But if I stay there, <laughs> that causes depression, right? So mm -hmm. like being present, being mindful of like what's happening right now and then making choices that serve me and who I want to be right now. And that has kept me sane through this year of cancer catastrophe, you know, 
Um, so at the end of the day, I am lucky and I'm grateful. And I am cancer-free and I'm going to stay that way. You know, I, 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 so like when I say something like what I'm about to say, it sounds so weird to me. Like I claim that I have a fully healed body. Like my body is completely healed. So I'm just manifesting it. Right. So like not right now, but it's on the way. Like I already own it. I already have a body that's completely healed. I just am like living into it. Right. Like as the stuff heals up and the scars close and the wounds close, like then I'm going to wind up with a perfectly healed body, like the, the divine creation that is my body. And I mean that with so much intention and like so almost ferocity, but still like every time I say it, I'm like, what does that sound like? Do I sound like a hippie guy with flowing robes and a man bun? You know? No. I know, but like I I do (laughs) in a way. But then I'm like, is that so bad? No. No. I think God must think very highly of you because they say God only gives you what you can handle. So he's like, that Dan guy, we can blow him up and turn him inside out. And there's nothing Dan can't handle. You know, I've I've considered that. And I'm like, you know what, God? Thank you. And let's give someone else a chance. (laughs) Not wishing that on anyone else, but like sort of like, can I get a, can I, can we retire my jersey? Can we put it up on the wall? Uh, So funny. You have incredible life experience that, shows you why agency is important, why these Mm -hmm. spiritual practices are important, why self-responsibility is important. Mm -hmm. What, we've talked about this a little bit, like behind the scenes, what what concerns you when you're looking at the world now? Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned government and how we're treating its people. Um, Like how, what are we teaching our kids? Are these the lessons that we're teaching our kids right now from what you can see well and not if you watch the news right so it's sort of like you get presented a narrative that fits an agenda Mm -hmm. and then if you don't believe the narrative or don't conform to that narrative then all of a sudden you're the enemy and it's sort of like kind of preaching that so it's not what we're teaching the kids when you look at a a macro level but hopefully it's what we're teaching our kids in the in the home and as a parent as yeah. a parent one of the problems and it's and it's rampant that i see um are you know people have such a twisted or it seems to be they have this this twisted idea of tolerance you know it's sort of like oh no my god i accept everyone and it's love and light and, you know, no matter how they practice uh, faith or no matter, no matter how they identify with a gender, no matter how they, you, no matter how they, you know, live their life, like we're going to be all love and all accepting. And then you'll say, and I'm not saying this to be cliche, it just happens to be an easy target. They're like, well, okay, so how do you feel about Donald Trump? Well, that motherfucker can burn in hell, that piece of shit who's like, you know. Like, that's not tolerance. That's not acceptance. It's not love. It's like, you're like, if they believe in this one way that you're looking at the world, 
and then it's all good. But the minute someone disagrees with you, then it's yeah. like, it's, it's hate and it's venomous, it's toxic. It's sort of like, how are you saying these things out of the same mouth? You know, like you're, you're saying you're all accepting. You're saying, oh, we should love each other. That means you love each other, all people, especially people who view the world or think differently than you. Now, yes, if someone's harming someone, they're actually like physically harming someone. And I kind of say that on, on purpose because this is very unpopular. This is very unpopular, but I believe uh, words are not violence. The adult, like exactly. words aren't violence, Pe just, just period. Just, there's no, like you, there's no way of being violent with words. You can use words to stir up anger and then create violence. Okay, that, that's one thing, but words aren't violence. Like calling misgendering someone is not violence. Um, uh, even if it's intentional, it's, it, it, there's, it's a different word. It's not good. It's not nice. It's not kind, but it's not, it's not violence. Um, and in that sort of, in that sort of world, we're, we're, we're creating this, like it's, you're either right, meaning you believe what I believe or you're completely wrong. And then, so that sort of judgment, sort of like the girl popping up from yoga and then you actually don't know what's behind it because people feel the way they feel about the world and they have the values that they have based on as lived experience of their life. So who yes. are you to say anything about their faith or the way that they believe um, mm -hmm. in anything? Because when you start to say that words are violence, and then you can start getting legislation passed where you, where the government gets to legislate what you get to say. That is not freedom of speech. That is tyrannical. And it is mm -hmm. maniacal to believe that that is possibly sustainable and that leads anywhere but something tragic. It's like we need to have the sort of discourse that's very uncomfortable to sort of actually come together. How are you going to come together when you can't see something from someone else's perspective, especially the people that you don't agree with? Um, mm -hmm. The difference is when there's actual violence and you're harming someone physically or you're um, taking their money away or their, their ability to raise their family or you're, you're actually hurting them, then that's something different that should never be tolerated. But um, it's just that sort of dichotomy that, 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 that I see intolerance. Like the people that say that the most tolerant people of world, in the world are actually, in my looking and analysis, some of the least tolerant people in the world. Absolutely. No, I'm seeing that too. It's a, it's a selective tolerance. Mm -hmm. People that say that they believe in free speech, but it's only for some people. Right. Um, that we should expect that we should um, accept people for being of different sexualities or mm -hmm. um, different belief systems, but you know, not the Christians. Um, right. Attack those guys, or right. not the white people. Like they've and, been in power too long. What does that even mean? You know, it's crazy. I see with children that we. I, it came from a good place i believe i think there's some very very good people in this movement that think that we can just love people 
into healing or being a certain way, but I think we're doing a disservice because it's love and consequences. I think we mm -hmm. should love and accept people while still practicing discernment, right? Like we have this yes. culture where if you're in a certain identity group, you're not allowed to critique any behavior within that identity group. And that's just not reality. No one is actually free from criticism right. and no individual should be void of discernment <laughs> and mm -hmm. discernment is different than judgment right like right. everything that you've done with baptist yoga um it wasn't do what you feel like oh like you're smoking you're partying no big deal it's like no be disciplined get your mm -hmm. life together treat others well do this uncomfortable work so that you are stronger um I don't see that. Like I, I listen to your stories about combat mm -hmm. and I look at our kids and I look at men, honestly, I look at men today and I'm like, who would actually sign up to do something so selfless? I think very few, I think there are very few men out there in that world. And I mean that in the, like a traditional masculine energy kind of way. And I'm not saying everyone needs to be that way, but we have strangely vilified masculine energy, masculinity. Um, and again, I don't think anyone has to be that way if, if they right. are a man, right. but it's very, very strange that we have vilified it in a lot right. of ways too. And it's a lot of, a lot of it is sort of like, at least the way I look at it and makes sense of a lot of it too, is sort of just like the pendulum swinging. It's sort of the whole sort of cliche thing that's also very true. It's like hard times create strong men and women, right? Strong men and women create easy times. Easy times create soft men, soft women, right? So we are in the like, we had it so easy. We're in the like softness and because there's sort of like a consensus around it based on all the ease that we've had over the last decades, um, as far as like technology growth, especially, you know, in, in the West, uh, that there's sort of like, oh, well, this is just right. It's just the right way to be. And I'm like, absolutely not. It's absolutely not. And I, I've even had people um, in the yoga community, in, and I'm not saying that it's like, that's where it comes from. But say to me like well why how can you be a yoga teacher if you've you know gone to war like did you just want to like literally you just want to kill people like why do you want to kill people and i'm like mm -hmm. that's the most disgusting thing i've ever heard from a human being's face like face like i wanted to, like i wanted to be violent you know because mm -hmm. i happen to be in the sort of like i sort of identify with masculinity and i will punch you in the fucking face you know like <laughs> right like fuck around and find out sort of like all yeah. of uh, namaste, you know, yeah. like, um, you know, and, and so they have, they have a picture of what, or more of a picture of why a man would volunteer to go fight in a war. And mm -hmm. from their twisted point of view, or at least the, the couple people that I've heard comments like that from in their twisted point of view, the person who signs up to go to combat is somebody who just wants to have his bloodlust and wants to hurt people and wants to kill people. And, and those people do exist. It's not like those people don't exist. They do. But I'll tell you a hundred percent of the men that I've served with 
um, they volunteered because they love this country so much that they love people so much that they're willing to go put their life on the line to defend to defend that way of being and so like and hopefully provide safer a safer world where people can continue to love each other without prejudice or fear of reprisal and like you know without you know like fighting each other other over you know god knows whatever reason it is like we're these people enlist and join and serve because of love not because of some like maniacal bloodlust and i'm like i can't understand people who think the other way that somebody wants to like oh you're going to join the army because you want to hurt people i'm like that's fucking crazy to me and this is where well there's multiple communities there's you could call it the yogic community you could call it the spiritual community mm -hmm. the awake community the freedom mm -hmm. community I'm seeing this too. It's not just um, left and right. It's there's a large conglomerate of individuals that are calling themselves awake and conscious, yet practicing this kind of intolerance. And it's kind of bubbling up a lot lately. And maybe it's justifiable or <laughs> it's understandable considering right. the climate that we're in. But I see even within these communities, you know, oh, you're not awake if you use fluoridated toothbrush toothpaste you're not awake if you think elon musk is a good guy you're not awake if you are a carnivore or if you're a vegan and it's all nonsense all of right. it is nonsense i want no part of it whatsoever because if you're actually awake and conscious mm -hmm. the all spiritual teachings teach the same thing our goal is to treat each other well it's to connect with one another it's to connect with god all those little things that people are fighting about mm -hmm. is just noise all yeah. of it so we're not really awake if we're turning on each other right and i think it's also a little bit lazy too because there's a what i've noticed in the same communities you're talking about that have all the different labels is it's sort of like what they're lacking a lot of times is some sort of disciplined action towards something like, Oh, if you're really committed to that, why don't you create a sustainable communal living space for yeah, like, take some action, put some action behind mm -hmm. your sort of methodology or this revelation that you've had about your spirituality and, and maybe in a very healthy way, try to spread that and grow it like with, with action and discipline. But instead, when there's no, they're not taking any action around everything, it's just easy to like poke at everybody else and kind of sit back and be like, but I'm so spiritual. Um, but I'm so yeah. awake to like the world. But they're not using that piece that they've gotten to take disciplined action towards something. They're just sort of like vegging out and being completely lazy about it. And from that, from that place of, of laziness, for lack of a better word, um, it's just so easy to kind of jab at other people. I heard you know, Joe like Rogan. Be, be too busy. Be too busy to care about what anybody else is thinking or doing in your life. Like really, okay. being a creation of something so powerful that you're so passionate about. Like be find something that you're so passionate about that you're willing to have the grit to see it through to the end, whatever it is for, for you, that you know when you do that, in my experience, 
is those are the people that like actually don't care what anyone else thinks or th- yeah. doesn't care to point out the differences. They're like more like, yeah, you go do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. I'm, I'm occupied with something that I'm called to be doing, called to be a, of greater service to humanity um, in this mm-hmm. way. And so by nature of doing that and using the things that I've woken up to, um, yeah, because you know, I don't want I don't want to calcify my pineal gland either with fluoride or whatever else. <laughs> but but at the same time, I'm like, if you want to use Crest, go for it, bro. Like, it's, I don't care. <laughs> that that's such a good point about like a- actual effort. Uh, Joe Rogan was saying people want the most amount of attention without with the least amount of work, like the mm-hmm. climate change activist that threw a can of soup on a Van Gogh. He's like, why don't you go clean up a beach if you actually really care about the earth? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> They're gluing themselves to things and not realizing how terrible an idea that is. Mm-hmm. To glue yourself to the floor of something or to the road or whatever. Like actually, like why don't you channel that energy into something productive? so that people can look at you as an inspiration versus a crazy person. That's right. Dan, what are, what are your next steps? You've been teaching yoga, you've been helping veterans, obviously right now you're taking very good care of yourself and your body as you should, as you're finishing up your cancer treatments, beating cancer, future cancer survivor. I saw mm-hmm. um, people at home. might not be able to see, I got my den team. Nevins. That's it. Team Nevins. Woo. <laughs> what might you do in the future with all of these new things that you've learned? Because I, I, I know to be true about you that you just love to be of service. Is there anything that you're going to do differently or are you already doing it? No, I am. There's a lot that I'm going to do differently. One of the things, one of the benefits of having um, all this time, like this last year, I haven't been working. Um, which sucks and is a blessing in a way so I can focus on healing. Um, but it's sort of taken me out of my routines. It's taken me out of the, you know, what I would you normally be consuming my life with. And it made me realize how lazy I've been in, in the past of sort of like putting off things. Like I've been working on a book for more than four years. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. But like, I'm like, it is getting done in 2023 no matter what, no matter what it takes, no matter what, how, no matter how long it takes, no matter how frustrated I get, it is getting done in 2023, even if I have to start over, which is what I might have to do. Um, Cause the, I think the book is a little different now than it would have been four years ago. So um, I'm going to finish the uh, book. I, I am going to just put my money where my mouth is when it comes to like putting things into practice and taking action. Um, I, as I look back, like I never noticed this in real time, but like, as I look back, I realized that I talked a bigger game than I took action on and deliver. And then, so I'm like, I have to make really sure that if I'm going to say something's going to happen, that I'm willing and committed to do all the work it takes to make that thing happen. So I'm going to have to say no to a lot more things. Um, I'm going to have to say yes to a lot of bigger things that are actually going to 
take more of my time and, and energy. And um, I think that's a great place to start. I don't have it all figured out yet, but I know that um, at least the perspective I've gained in this last year um, over kind of beating cancer, because it's gone. So like I am a cancer survivor. Um, the things that I've learned is like, I have to raise my game. Um, even though a lot of other people would say, no, you're doing so much or whatever. I want to be like, shut, shut it down. Stop it. I can do more. And not in some sort of masochistic, I got to work myself to death way. No, in like a real life, like there's some things I want to be up to in the world. And if I don't make a disciplined practice of making them reality, they won't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you are being bigger you are being better it, like yes in the actions but just also in just who you are and and really this this world is tough and that's what we all need to do to just keep on getting stronger working on ourselves and doing this kind of inquiry to see what am i missing what do i yeah. need to change where do i need to keep going dan yeah. thank you who so am i really supposed to be like who do i really want to be like get clear on it like who for my family, for my community, for the world, like who, who am I supposed to be? Who do I want to be? And then like taking, making the right choices that actually day to day that point in that direction. I've wanted to interview you since the day I met you. So I'm so glad this finally happened. Yay, um, exactly. Me too. Um, if people want to, work with you, learn about you, where, where can they find you? Um, well, my website's being reconstructed right now. So that's dannevins.com. And that's my email is dan at dannevins.com. Feel free to shout out Instagram, Dan Nevins, Facebook, all those things that I'm terrible at checking, but I'll eventually get there. Um, yeah, I'd love to collaborate on some things that, that people think that I'd be valuable for because, um, as you're, we're trying to figure out life, right? And like, oh, who am I supposed to be? You still have to do something, or you have to take mm -hmm. some sort of action. And then that action inspires like you to get on the path that you're supposed to be on. So yeah, I'd love to be up yeah. to being part of someone else's community. Uh, come in mine, join it. We have a come great on. I'm, I'm happy. Let's do it. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, my friend. And I hope the rest of your healing journey goes easy for you. God gives you thank a little you. break here, a well-deserved break. And uh, thank you for sharing all of these stories. Hey guys, I hope you liked today's episode. I've been wanting to have a conversation with Mr. Nevins here for a very long time. He's the type of human that we really need to be getting in front of kids someone that just has an incredible amount of appreciation for this life, courage, agency, resilience. These are the stories we need to tell our kids more. Maybe you'll share this episode with them. If you like what we're doing here on Sensemaking, please think about giving us a follow, sharing this episode on your social channels, or hitting the subscribe button. It helps us a lot. This episode was brought to you by The Sovereign, a membership for a world gone wild. We teach you everything that you might need for a world gone wild. We teach you essential sovereign skills. 
We connect you with like-minded community. And best of all, we help you develop an unshakable self. One that can not only handle this world, one that thrives in it. Check the show notes out for links to what Dan is up to, my one-on-one services, and of course, The Sovereign. I'll see you guys next time.